Coming up on Tech Nation, we look at what is possible and impossible given the necessity to teach our children at home with technology and the internet. The answer is, surprise, surprise, complicated. I speak with Dr. Justin Reich, director of the Teaching Systems Lab at MIT and host of the podcast, Teach Lab. He's here today with Failure to Disrupt, why technology alone can't transform education. Then Tech Nation Health Chief Correspondent Dr. Daniel Kraft tells us that we're having an infodemic. He also tells us what the word infodemic means. All this and more coming up on this week's Tech Nation. Let's take five with Moira Gunn. This is Five Minutes. In a 2013 Tech Nation interview, UCLA professor Jared Diamond talked to me about his book, The World Until Yesterday, What We Can Learn from Traditional Societies. What happened 11,000 years ago was the origins of farming which meant enormous increase in population because from a wheat field you get far more food than gathering in the forest. But once you get a large population, you start encountering strangers, you need a government, you can support a government, you need laws, and you have formalized wars rather than chronic wars. So stuff changed beginning 11,000 years ago. But there are plenty of societies that in modern times still do not have centralized government to remind us of what traditional societies were like. Now, the lives and the goals of humans, you know, before and after, as you read your book, you realize they're not that much different. They, that's to say people in traditional society, they have children, they have arguments, they have old people that they have to deal with. There are dangers that they have to be aware of. They have religion. They have languages. They have multiple languages. Yeah, so they have these common human problems, which means that no matter how exotic they seem, maybe we can learn from them. And let's start with the role of older people, um, you know, in terms of value within the totality of society. I mean, that, that certainly has changed. Yeah, that has changed. The most obvious change in the value of old people is that traditionally, before there was writing, old people were the repositories of information. If you wanted to learn something, you asked an old person. Today, if you want to learn something, you look it up in a book or newspaper or turn on the radio or you Google it. So that means a big loss in value of old people. Well, it's interesting as well. I think it's not just the facts. It's the is what maturity brings you in terms of the consequences of things and the importance of being together and, you know, a whole lot of things that doesn't really come through in the Google facts. That's true. And I, at age 75, am not going to end that discussion by saying that old people have lost a lot of their value. They've gained in value precisely because the rate of technological change today is so rapid. Yet it's perfectly true that I can't turn on my television set. I have to call my sons to talk me through the wretched 41-button remote. But it's also true that conditions have changed so markedly, but some of those old conditions could come back that, for example, it's only older Americans who know the experience of a world war or a Great Depression. And that's the value that old people have 
even more today because of the rapid rate of, of change, which means it's only the old people who have experience of conditions that could come back. Some characterizations of traditional societies continue through the modern era, and, and certainly if we take China as an example, here's a society in which the elderly were very well respected and has been a tradition. You point out that's beginning to erode. My Chinese and Japanese friends tell me that there have been big changes in the last several decades in China and in Japan. I believe it was the case until maybe the 1950s that Chinese had an obligation to care for their old parents, a legal obligation. That's no longer the case. In Japan, my wife has Japanese cousins, so we know a good deal about life in Japan. Fifty years ago, the majority of marriages in Japan were arranged, not by the couple, but by the relatives. Now, as in the U.S., people date and they arrange their own marriages. But ironically, in Japan, this shift from an arranged marriage to a negotiate-yourself marriage has coincided with the arrival of electronic media, which means that young Japanese lack the social skills. And my wife's cousin told us of being in a restaurant in Japan where there was a couple obviously there on their first date, and they were very shy, and they were opposite sides of the table. They weren't talking to each other. They were texting each other because they hadn't (laughs) learned the social skills to talk with each other. You perhaps know UCLA professor Jared Diamond Best as the author of 1997's Guns, Germs, and Steel, or his first book, The Third Chimpanzee. I was able to speak with Professor Diamond about the world until yesterday on Tech Nation in 2013. I'm Moira Gunn. This is 5 Minutes. 5 Minutes is produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. 5 Minutes is a production of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt. From San Francisco, I'm Moira Gunn, and this is Tech Nation. Today on Tech Nation, Justin Wright, a professor of comparative media studies at MIT and the director of the Teaching Systems Lab. He'll tell us what works and doesn't work with technology. It depends on what technology and the age of the student and what we actually are trying to teach, much more than the ABCs. Then Tech Nation Health Chief Correspondent Dr. Daniel Kraft tells us that on top of everything else, we are experiencing an infodemic, and with care, we can be smart about it. And now, Justin Reich. Justin, welcome to Tech Nation. Thanks for having me, Maura. Within the first few sentences of your book, you write, for the most part, instructors teach how they were taught. In this time of the COVID pandemic, uh-oh, <laughs> none of the teachers were came in a remote online setting. Still, over the last two decades, we've heard education technology evangelists tell the public over and over again that we were right around the corner from transformative change in education. 
we had people like Clay Christensen, the Harvard Business School professor, say that by 2019, he wrote this in 2009, by 2019, half of all courses would in six through 12, K-12 grade secondary school would be online or blended and they would cost as third of much and they would be better. Uh, we had people like Sebastian Thrun say that with the rise of massive open online courses from places like Udacity and Coursera and edX, there were only gonna be 10 institutions of higher education left and Udacity might be one of them. So we were promised this transformative change and then the pandemic happens. 1.6 billion learners around the world leave their schools and have to go home. And overwhelmingly, what we've seen is professors and teachers doing everything they possibly can to extend their existing practices. It's like they walked away from their lecterns and sat down at their home office webcams and as much as possible tried to keep teaching the way they had been teaching before. I, I don't think we'll ever have a more powerful illustration of the conservatism of education systems in our lifetime. Well, to tell you the truth, that might work at the university level, but when we start to look at different ages, I mean, anyone who's raised a child from infanthood to adulthood knows their capabilities at every age, they're constantly changing. That's right. And uh, how does that change in what we can do online? Yes, it raises very serious concerns, especially for our youngest learners. So when we look at what little research there is about virtual schools that existed before the pandemic, they're not really virtual schools. They're not schools that are trying to have a teacher in some distanced place teach a young person in another place. They really are organizations that support coached homeschooling. They assume the existence of a full-time caregiver who can sit with a child, if the child is in kindergarten or first grade or second grade, for the entire time that they're doing learning activities. If they're in 10th or 11th or 12th grade, they might need much, much less, and then it's variable all the way in the middle. But there, there are not online schools before the pandemic that tried to take seven-year-olds and have them sit in front of iPads or Chromebooks for seven hours a day and have their attention maintained by an instructor you know, in an office park uh, 100 miles away or something like that. They all depended upon a full-time adult caregiver. And I think we are trying desperately to build systems in this country that allow children to be taught independently through computers, through technology, when it's just not developmentally possible for the vast majority of young learners. Before anyone thinks that technology for teaching is different than any communication out there, let's go to the other end of the technology spectrum. And I'd like you to start with that first story in your book about the craft product Rainbow Loom. Sure. So one of the things that captures my attention about online learning is how in some circumstances, just how naturally and how fluidly people take to it. So for anyone who has parented a 10-year-old in the last 10 or 15 years, you're probably familiar with Rainbow Loom. They are these little rubber bands, which you stitch together on a plastic pegboard. And first you make little bracelets out of them, then you make little tchotchkes. And then if you get way into it, you make, you know, purses and prom dresses and dragons and all kinds of other crazy things. And 
one amazing story about Rainbow Loom is there's an entrepreneur in Michigan who comes up with this idea, who sends a bunch of CAD drawings for these plastic pegboards to China. They manufacture thousands and then millions of sets of these things. They put them on pallets. They put them on shipping containers. They send them all over the world, people all over the world buy Rainbow Loom. At the same time, almost instantaneously, and almost with no central coordination whatsoever, a global network appears around the world of people teaching each other about Rainbow Loom. In 2013, there was a bunch, it was kind of the hit Christmas toy of 2013. And there were a bunch of news stories which said things like, oh, isn't Rainbow Loom great? Like, we finally got kids to put their phones down and play with craft toys. But that wasn't actually true because Rainbow Loom comes packaged with, you know, maybe 10 bracelet designs that you can make. And then once you finish those, the only way to keep having fun with Rainbow Loom is to keep learning new designs, new techniques, new ways of doing things. And so for the kids who got really into Rainbow Loom, it wasn't that your phones were away, is that the Rainbow Loom was on the floor in one part and your cell phone or tablet or computer was lying right next to it. And you were looking up YouTube videos or going to Reddit channels or connecting with your friends who had the same hobby on Facebook, trading designs, trading experiences, sharing what you were learning. And to me, this is just a miraculous development in human society that somebody invents this craft toy and a giant global network of teachers and learners instantaneously appears all over the world to help anyone who wants to. Anyone who's connected to the network world can hop online and learn how to make rainbow loom bracelets. And part of the paradox that the book really tries to unpack is that as naturally and fluidly, as easily as we do that with our hobbies and leisure time, we find tremendous challenges and obstacles in bringing these kinds of learning into school and in building online learning environments that successfully teach people things that they're not nearly as interested in learning, like factoring polynomials or understanding the causes of the Civil War or those kinds of things. We've had a lot of discussion in the United States, uh, in the media, on social media, between just people, everyday people all the time, uh, about kids need to be in school and and uh, what's traditional education about. And uh, you use the term formal education. And is that simply going to school as we know it? I mean, I think your example of the Rip Van Winkle story is telling. Sure. So there are all kinds of folks who make their living giving keynotes at schools, you know, that are sort of experts in technology. And a joke that gets made over and over again is that if Rip Van Winkle woke up today and he walked to a supermarket, he would be stunned to see all of the products on the shelves and the self-checkout machines. He'd be amazed to walk into banks and see the walls handing out money to people after they just push in some buttons. Uh, he would be, you know, amazed at the ways that we talk to one another through these little handheld devices. And then Rip Van Winkle would walk into a school building and go, ah, finally, I feel at home. These are things are the way that they've always been. Um, and then everyone laughs uproariously at the, at the keynoters talk. And I think there is some truth to that, that schooling institutions are conservative institutions in our society, but I don't think that they're conservative because they're run by a bunch of people who are stuck in the mud and are uninterested in the future. I mean, these are people who are keenly, keenly interested in the future. They spend all day, every day of their lives devoted to the future in the form of the young people who spend their time with them every day. 
But I think our schools are asked in our society to balance and negotiate an unbelievably complex set of initiatives, of requirements, of goals. We ask schools to teach people how not to be a bully, how to be a good friend, how to love your country, but also how to question your country. We ask that to teach them how to play sports and how to sing songs and how to operate fine motor skills and tie your shoes. It's just an incredible range of things that we've asked our schools to do. And certainly the pandemic has revealed that, by the way, we also need schools to feed children and to find a safe place for them to be during the day and to provide frontline health care and to provide frontline social work and mental care and all other kinds of you know parts of our social safety net that could probably be taken up by other parts of our institution. And so negotiating these complexities is really challenging. And one of the things that education technology entrepreneurs often hope is that new technologies will kind of sweep away all this complexity, that they'll build a thing and people will recognize, oh, this is just such a better way to do teaching and learning. Let's get rid of all this old stuff and we'll be in this sort of new millennia of a revealed new world. And that's not really what happens. What happens is that new technologies get incorporated, get domesticated by these existing complex systems and they sort of fit into little particular or particular slots within society. And, and some people may say that that's a bad thing. I try to be a sort of empirical guy. And so I just sort of say, look, that's the thing. It may be a good thing. It may be a bad thing. But that's the way improvement happens. Improvement happens through incremental, iterative efforts at continuous improvement. And technology can be a part of that. But we don't spend our time wisely when we have imaginations about sweeping away the present for some technological future. You're listening to Tech Nation. I'm Moira Gunn, and my guest today is Dr. Justin Reich. He's the Mitsui Career Development Professor of Comparative Media Studies and Director of the Teaching Systems Lab at MIT. You might know him as the host of the podcast, Teach Lab, and he's written about education and technology for Education Week, The New Yorker, The Atlantic, Washington Post, and science. He's here today with Failure to Disrupt, Why Technology Alone Can't Transform Education. Now, many of us are familiar with and have lived with for a long time that well-used term, the digital divide, the haves and have-nots when it comes to computers and the Internet. Now, if we assume, let's presume just for this conversation, if we got every student was given a computer and the Internet, they still need educational technology. And wasn't that supposed to be equal for everybody? That was certainly the hope, is that there were these complex technology infrastructures that were available previously to affluent schools, but not to schools serving low-income communities. And then along comes the web, and along comes all these free online resources. And this should be able to democratize education. And we should be able to simply provide technology access to these students And they will have the same school resources that would have been available to the most affluent private schools in the world. Interestingly, this is a story that gets told basically with every generation of education technology. Um, My colleague, Larry Cuban, who is a emeritus professor at Stanford, has a book called Teachers and Machines. And he's got a great photograph of a group of students huddled around an old radio receiver, one of the radio receivers, you know, that's the size of a small child. And the caption of the picture is, with radio, the underprivileged 
privileged school becomes a privileged one. So this story is one, you know, that's at this point nearly a hundred years old. And it turns out that when we look at these things closely, we find that the story doesn't pan out very well for disadvantaged learners, that what we find is that to take advantage of even free technologies, you need to have a certain amount of financial and social and technical capital. You need to have adults who care about you and can guide you. You need to have technology resources. You need to have people who can believe in you and support you. And we provide those resources in lesser quantities to students in poor neighborhoods than we do in students in affluent neighborhoods. And so our technologies tend to accelerate rather than ameliorate digital divides. Now, if you are in the teaching business, which you are and I am, individual student accomplishments of learning objectives leads us to testing. And you got to have that or you're not accredited. And most universities, most in institutions of, of any kind of learning, high schools, grade schools, they have to meet some kind of accreditation standard that roll back to learning objectives and testing or assessment, as we like to call it, which leads us to something that technology is doing, automatic grading. This is more than multiple choice questions, automatic grading of essay questions and computer programs. There is a whole bunch of it. And one of the most important things to understand about education technology is how uneven it is. We have technologies that work in sub-subject areas, but not others, in some contexts, but not others, for some learners, but not others. So, and assessment technologies are no different. We have some perfectly reasonable assessment technologies that work in mathematics. If you ask a student a question that has a computational answer, um, that for which there's only one right answer, we can compute what the full range of those answers is, computers can grade those things really well. One of the things that computers can grade really well are other computer programs. That's kind of a handy fact because we'd like lots of people to learn computer programming and there's not that many computer programming teachers. And so, uh, you know, we can design, we can make it so that we assign a group of people to write a computer program that's supposed to meet some kind of engineering requirement. And then the instructors can write a computer program that can evaluate how well that program works. Those are great. However, there are lots of things that we cannot automatically assess. Probably the largest category of things that we don't have good tools to, to computationally assess is writing and reasoning from evidence. We don't have good tools to be able to say this person made a compelling, accurate argument or plausible argument based on the evidence and this other person did not. We can sort of do that under certain kinds of circumstances but it doesn't work very well, and it only works well to the extent that the other ways that we do that kind of grading is not very good. One of the problems with this is that the things that I describe that computers are good at assessing are the things that computers are good at anyway. If you can construct a question with an answer, which is bound, which is routine, which is structured, then computers can do a good job assessing that. But that's exactly the kind of work that computers are good at doing anyway. If you ask people to do things that are unstructured, that are persuasive, require complex communication or subjective, then computers typically are not very good at assessing that kind of work. And so we've, we've built this sort of strange collusion of assessment machinery where the things that we can evaluate cheaply and at scale are the things that we don't need human beings to do anymore. Now, you write in your introduction, I attempt to explain why learning technologies work in some situations and not for others, and for some people and not for others. What about our teachers? Are some teachers, just these learning technologies, they're just not going to work for them? That is a great question and a complicated one. 
One thing that we know about teachers, particularly in K-12 schools, is that they are barraged by requests to participate in new innovation efforts or new routines or new things. We have very high rates of turnovers in principal positions, in superintendent positions. And so teachers are just constantly being told, hey, there's some brand new way we came up with to teach things, and we want you to start doing that now. So a natural response that teachers have is to be kind of defensive, is or, or at least to say, I'm going to be a patient pragmatist. Patient pragmatist is what my colleague Peter Senge at the MIT uh, Sloan School of Business calls them. I'm going to wait and see if there's some evidence of whether or not this thing that people are asking me to do is actually better. And if there's not that much evidence that it's actually better, I'm going to find ways to sort of minimally comply. I'll do it if they make me or someone comes to observe, but I'm not really going to do it. So if you take a new innovation like bringing adaptive tutors or bringing tablets into schools, you're going to have a small number of teachers for whom innovation is part of the fuel of doing the job, a thing that just gets them really excited about their work. And so they try new things, they come up with new practices, they share with colleagues. If enough of those folks have success in what they're doing, then more of those patient pragmatists kind of hop off the fence and go, okay, I'll try this thing. This is work for my colleague. It might be working for me too. This seems pretty cool. Um, and then there's a group of teachers who are often resistant to new technologies and new ideas. And I've over the years learned to really think of these folks as people who care a lot about their students and care just as much about their students as the folks who are out there trying new ideas. They just have more confidence that the practices and techniques and skills that they've honed over the last few years, the last few decades work pretty well. And that new things often don't work as well as well-established things. And so it doesn't make sense to be sort of chasing after new practices all the time. Um, now, the crazy thing about those three kinds of people, the kind of early adopters, the patient practice pragmatists, the more reticent folks, is that they can appear anywhere in schools. I've traveled to schools all across the United States, and in some places, it's the high school, which is driving forward on technology and innovation teaching practices, and in some places, it's the elementary schools. In some places, it's the science and math departments that see a natural connection with technology and say, well, English and history, there's no real reason to use it there. And you go to other schools where they say, no, look at how the written word is changing and how historical practice is changing. We have to change our history and, and English curricula and our practices. And of course, science and math is still just science and math. So obviously they're not doing things that differently. Um, and then it gets more complicated when you realize that we have technologies that do certain things in these subject areas well for teaching and learning and other things not so well. In math, we have a lot of great tools for teaching computation. And computation is a big part of math, but it's not the only part of math. Um, lots of what mathematicians need to do is find problems in the world, is think about sensible ways to set up and frame those problems, to compute and solve those problems, but then to explain in words or in writing what it was that they did to come up with those solutions. Um, and we don't have good technologies for evaluating those or for teaching those kinds of skill sets in math. So it's, it's a complicated, complicated field, which gets oversimplified into oh, we built a math tutor, and so now we can teach math better you know, than a classroom teacher can. Now, a friend of mine, she was walking by her teenage daughter's room, and she looks in there, and her teenage daughter is in there doing jumping jacks. And she's like, what is going on? She goes, oh, mom, I'm in PE. You know, and I'm just like, really? That's very interesting. Um, and it's one thing to say, boy, isn't that amusing? But she had her own room. 
She had her own computer. You know, and we've just talked about the digital divide, and we've got people in rural areas. We have the, the poor everywhere. And then we have the poor urban neighborhoods where do you ever, does, do individual students have a space to themselves or a quiet place that they could go? And I'm thinking, you mentioned tablets earlier, but what about the smartphones? Most of these kids have smartphones. What has been done to transition any of this educational technology to the smartphone area? So if you talk with teachers who have worked in the nation's urban schools over the last decade, you will find plenty of stories of extraordinary innovation, both on the part of teachers and on students, of making teaching and learning work through mobile phones. Dr. Justin Reich is the director of the Teaching Systems Lab at MIT and author of Failure to Disrupt, Why Technology Alone Can't Transform Education. We'll talk more after a break. Podcasts of Tech Nation are available on NPR One, Spotify, and Alexa Podcasts, among others. Direct links are available at technation.com. In the second half of our show, the term infodemic. What is it? How does it affect us? And how do we protect ourselves? Stay with us. Listening to Tech Nation. Dr. Justin Reich is an MIT professor and director of the Teaching Systems Lab. His book is Failure to Disrupt Why Technology Alone Can't Transform Education. So, if you talk with teachers who have worked in the nation's urban schools over the last decade, you will find plenty of stories of extraordinary innovation, both on the part of teachers and on students, of making teaching and learning work through mobile phones. I mean, it's only very recently that, you know, major technology providers have taken a kind of mobile first approach to the internet, but that mobile first approach was in some ways embraced by African-American Latino youth before many others. My my colleague S. Craig Watkins has some great writing uh, about the innovation that's happening there. But 
all of our learning experiences are limited by the tools that we have to teach and learn with. And there are some things that phones are really good at. They're really good at making media on the go. I mean, the the typical smartphone has more media creation power than my entire high school had uh, when I was in high school in the early 90s. It's not a great environment for writing. It's not a great environment for certain kinds of in-depth reading. It's not a great environment for managing multiple pieces of information like people can do on larger screens. So that it works well for some things and not for others. And one of the ways we know that is that affluent families make sure that their children have a phone and a tablet and a computer because they realize those devices can serve different purposes. Um, one of the things I've been most concerned about during the pandemic is calls from politicians to say that the digital divide is a problem and that schools have a responsibility for solving that problem. Um, we need to stop believing that schools can solve all of the social ills that our country faces. Like the superintendent of Belchertown, Massachusetts is not going to be running fiber optic cable up the holler to connect uh, you know, uh, homes that are on distant mountainsides to the internet. There are other parts of society that are responsible, you know, municipal government, state governments, the federal government, um, in, you know, in the early 20th century, when rural homes didn't have electricity, we didn't turn to principals and superintendents and say, well, you really got to make sure that electrical power gets to your kids' home so they can read and do their homework at night. Um, we, we can't see schools have an important role to play in nurturing young people in meeting their learning needs, but we can't ask them to play the role of our entire social safety net for children and their families. And humans and technology have their natural boundaries. I mean, I'm looking at my hands and my fingers and how they fit on a keyboard. And, you know, as kids are growing up, you know, they have different sizes and different um, motor coordination skills, et cetera. Um, and when you were talking about the the mobile phone, the smartphone, so I was given some smarts, even though it was small, um, the screen's too small. You can't do a whole lot with that. And how do you get information into it? At some point, you go below a threshold. So we do have limits on the hardware part of it and the human part, just to put that together for what apps are even possible. And many of these things don't work for our youngest learners because they don't have the fine motor skills to be able to operate things. I, I've been reading things online from kindergarten and first grade teachers who are desperately trying to make remote learning work for their students. And I think they're doing an amazing heroic job, even when they realize they're asking their students to do things that they know that they physically can't really do, that they don't have the muscle, uh, you know, the, the developed muscles, the fine motor skills, the coordination to be able to operate phones or operate tablets with proficiency, you know, a, a set of instructions to log on to Zoom or something like that, that a 13-year-old that a can just easily click through is a real obstacle for a five-year-old. Now, I do want to say that with all the assessments and the learning objectives and the reading, writing, and arithmetic and what we think of in school, uh, those are that's what we assess. But there's a whole lot more that are really a focus of the schools. Um, you, you write many things that happen in schools simply cannot happen at a distance. Like what? One of the first things that teachers will tell you is that their body is a really important teaching instrument. One of the most common 
techniques for helping students stay focused has a bunch of different names, but sometimes teachers just call it presence, which is when you're in a class of students and you're teaching or facilitating a discussion or just students are working on things and one of them starts losing focus or getting rowdy, you just go stand next to them. You, you don't have to chastise them. You don't even, you know, maybe put a hand on their shoulder or something. You just be near them. And in the process of being near them, you communicate, ideally, I care about you and you're kind of not doing what you're supposed to be doing here. And we're both going to be a lot happier if you just get on it. So why don't you do that? And like magic, students reorient their behavior and go back to doing what they were doing before. There is no equivalent to presence in a Zoom room. There is no subtle way to communicate with one and only one student um, in a way that doesn't sort of call them out or distract you or, or shift the conversation. One of my local elementary school principals said that there are we're learning that there are 500 or 1,000 things that we do every day, verbal or nonverbal, to make school work, and none of them work over Zoom. Uh, we get down at eye level at students. We look over their shoulder to see what they're working on. We see how they hold their fingers to tie their shoes or to hold their pencil. Um, we move near them. We give them eye contact that's unique to them in a way to acknowledge them. We pass them food when they're hungry um, or when they don't even realize that they're hungry. They just realize that they're angry and acting out. And we go, here's a granola bar. <laughs> this will make you feel better. Um, and uh, all, all kinds of things like that can't happen online. Although what we're seeing is just an extraordinary outpouring of creativity from America's teachers and, and teachers all over the world to be able to say, well, all right, well, how am I going to do as many of these kinds of things as possible? How am I going to replace um, some of these different kinds of activities? I mean, certainly probably the most um, striking thing that we can't do uh, in it remotely is feed children. And during remote learning, one of the signature concerns of schools has been to figure out how we're going to provide meals to the children who depend on them every day, which is an, an enormous percentage and shameful number uh, of children in advanced society. And I have to say, I too have felt the uh, the problem with, you know, individual reaching out while you have a whole group there. I was giving a two hour midterm and one of the females about an hour into it decided she was hungry. So she whips out, look like a big salad or something and just spends the next five minutes just kind of chowing down and looking in the screen and chowing down. And the only thing you have is private chat. And I'm like, what do I do? Do I tell everybody, please stop? <laughs> but everybody there, stop this person who's eating. What do I do? Yes, we have we have no and in seriousness, no no ability to do it. And in seriousness, um, there are people there with eating disorders that shouldn't be looking at this, could get distracted. There are people there who are suddenly thinking they're hungry as opposed to concentrating on what they're there is no way that I could figure out. Zoom, call me up. It's like what tell me how to do this because a lot of people can't figure out how to do that that crucial one to one uh you really need to change something well even we don't really have norms and scripts to be able to handle these new kinds of social circumstances you know there would be some folks who would say 
it, it, you know, the first order question is, should people be doing something like this? You know, it, it, how is eating distracting versus look, people are in their homes and they need to eat. Let's just let them do that. Um, if you do decide there's something to do, it's not clear how we sort of renegotiate these new kinds of interactions because the scripts that we have to make school work depend upon everyone knowing how school operates. I mean, it reminds me a little of my generation is kind of the first to really use online dating in a serious way. And when it, online dating first came out, if you asked a couple how they met and one of them said, we met online, the conversation would instantly turn to silence. Um, not that anyone necessarily had a problem with people dating online. It's just we had no social scripts. We had no way of figuring out what it was that we were supposed to say next to reconcile this like terribly awkward circumstance. And now we know to say things like, oh, what pickup line did he use? Or which app was it? Or where'd you go on your first date? And we've sort of developed over time collaboratively as a society those scripts. But schools are missing all of those kinds of things. Um, you know, in lots of schools, there are rituals like morning meeting. Um, relationships are the foundation of schooling and schools devote time just to have people get to know each other and spend time with each other. How do you reinvent those things in a Zoom breakout room or on Microsoft Teams or whatever it is? Now, beginning this January 2020, you started a new podcast, Teach Lab, uh, investigating the art and craft of teaching. Tell us about your podcast. I run a lab called the Teaching Systems Lab, and our thesis is that all around the world, people want to see more ambitious teaching and learning in classrooms. They want to see less recitation, more active, engaged, student-centered learning. And the only way that'll happen is if we can dramatically increase the quantity and quality of teacher learning. So how will that happen? We think online learning will play an incredibly important role in the future of teacher learning because teachers lead incredibly busy, complex lives, even when they're not in the midst of a pandemic. Um, and online learning can reach people where they're at. So for us, Teach Lab is not just a service effort to share the kinds of things that we're learning with teachers, but it's part of a broader research agenda to say, like, what is the role of public media, of podcasts, of massive open online courses, of freely available digital clinical simulations to improve teaching and learning? What we actually talk about in Teach Lab kind of depends on whatever it is that we're working on this uh, past spring at the beginning of the year, we were doing a bunch of research into equity teaching practices and anti-racist teaching practices. Um, and so the whole first season of Teach Lab was about that topic, particularly with an eye towards one of the things that we found is that there was a lot of discussion about how to avoid issues of bias and inequality in policy, in curriculum, in lesson planning, but less discussion about how to do anti-racist teaching work in the improvisational day-to-day, minute-to-minute interactions with teachers, so with, with te between teachers and students. So we found an area in which we thought the research was lacking, and we brought in a bunch of smart people to help us talk through and think through that issue while sharing it widely with the world. And then in March, the pandemic struck and we just spent all of our time talking about COVID teaching and how we were going to figure out this very difficult pivot that teachers have been working on um, since then. Uh, spontaneous outpourings are always great radio, you know, and I discovered that in 2015, you wrote a children's book, Baby's First Book of Zombies. 
That's right. It's an instant classic. And I'm so pleased now that when you go to my Amazon page, there's a failure to disrupt.com, this sort of very serious scholarly text next to a baby's first book of zombies. Yeah, I wrote it because a friend had a baby and the, the, this couple just like loved horror and sci-fi and stuff like that. And I thought the... Uh, um, I thought the the offerings in the children's book section were a little bit wimpy. And then I went to this this couple's baby shower and the first person I met was a comic book illustrator who was also having kids at the same time. And it was just sort of too uh too perfectly coincidental to do anything other than produce a book and uh and self-publish it through Kickstarter. So so if you were um so if you're watching zombie movies and afraid your kids it might rub off in your kids, this makes them feel good. Yes, I, that was exactly what it was designed for. Whether or not it works is uh, hard to say, but, but I will say a lot of kids thought it was fun. Science so hasn't studied you know, it. <laughs> I'm an empirical guy, and so I've got I've to tell you the limits of my own knowledge and understanding. That's a, that's a consistent policy I have, even with children's books about zombies. Justin, thank you so much for joining me. I hope you come back and see us again. It's been a pleasure, Maura. Thanks for having me. My guest today is MIT professor Justin Reich. His weekly podcast can be found at teachlabpodcast.com. His book is Failure to Disrupt, Why Technology Alone Can't Transform Education. It's published by Harvard University Press. I'm Moira Gunn. You're listening to Tech Nation. Tech Nation Health Chief Correspondent Dr. Daniel Kraft has just thrown out a word to me I hadn't heard before. Infodemic. Infodemic? We don't need another demic of any kind. But what could it be? The only way to know for sure is to ask Dr. Daniel Kraft. Well, Daniel, welcome. Good to be back. You said a word to me. I never heard it before. Infodemic. Well, we are in a pandemic, which is being exacerbated by an infodemic. Uh, I heard this term the other day also called doom scrolling on your smartphone. You sit there and look at all the news and information and misinformation. And now we are in an era of an infodemic, meaning we're getting so much information, good and bad, it's overwhelming. And some of that is literally bad actor information that is pushing us in the wrong direction in terms of our health, particularly in the setting of COVID, whether it's anti-maskers or anti-vaxxers or uh, even um, very high-level members of our government often disseminating information that is factually not true and is harmful to our public health and our personal health. Okay, the anti-vaxxers. I thought we were all done with that, with the autism and the, you know, and now we're all looking for a vaccine for COVID. I mean, you can't play both sides of that street. Well, let's take a step back since I'm a trained pediatrician as well, and we all know, well, Maybe you don't know, but the number one uh, cause of extended health and lifespan uh, in improving our public health have been vaccines, which, you know, uh, we all know about the poli vaccine. And most of us have had that and measles and mumps and rubella. Our great grandparents lived in fear of these diseases. Even you grew up in the era of, of polio and probably new folks who had it. Um, and measles now is, as an example of one vaccine, the anti-vaxxers are going after the fact that you know, some children maybe have had some reactions. Some children end up with autism. Doesn't mean the fact that they had a vaccine was causative. And there was several folks who published now much discredited papers uh, claiming that vaccines were causing uh, autism as one example and have been popularized by 
certain celebrities, which will go nameless. Uh, and that has created this whole movement of anti-vaxxers, and many parents are refusing to vaccinate their kids. And now we're seeing measles come back in many parts of the world, including the United States, and children and others will die. So that preceded this current pandemic. Now we're in the setting of a lot of uh, activity in the vaccine front. We're hoping, we're speaking now in the fall of 2020. We're hopeful that we'll have a uh, effective, safe vaccine by early 2021. Will you take it? Are you going to be suspicious? Um, has it been cleared by the FDA through science or through the pressures of politics? And I think the statistics now are about 50% of Americans say they won't take a vaccine. And vaccines don't work unless you have a certain number of people taking them and they have a certain efficacy. So this is really critical to our public health that we make sure we trust our regulatory systems, that our politicians don't play politics with information uh, around health, and that hopefully all when it's available, get vaccinated, not just for the flu, by the way, public service announcement. We're going to be in a twindemic of the flu uh, this fall and COVID. And make sure you get your flu vaccine because the, the double dose of getting flu and COVID could be uh, twice as deadly. Twice as deadly? Well, if you Deadly have the... once is good enough <laughs> yeah, for me. You, you can only die once. <laughs> You're saying that as a doctor, right? That's <laughs> clinically proven. Clinically proven. Well, some folks have been brought back. Uh, <laughs> but I would say, you know, what we need to do out there is 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 take pu smart public health measures, whether it's the, the measures we know, washing your hands, wearing a mask, social distancing, and getting the flu shot uh, early in the fall season can help protect you and your loved ones and your community, not just from the flu, but from spreading our, our current pandemic. And then when vaccines do become available, educate yourself. Um, listen to where the information comes from. Uh, you know, your, your, your interesting uncle on Facebook maybe not be the first place you should be getting your, your health information. This goes right to the heart of what's going on in the United States today. In the vice presidential debate, one of the candidates said, if this person says this vaccine will work, I'll be first in line. And if this person says it, I won't go there. Let's talk about not the perceptions of who says what, but how do we decide for ourselves that a vaccine or anything is good to take, it's not okay to take. Well, we need to go back to the basics of good old-fashioned science. Uh, uh, as was mentioned in the debate, you may want to be trusting the head of the National Institutes of Infectious Disease over a politician whose uncle may have been an MIT professor uh, but has no formal uh, healthcare education. In fact, uh, a leading member of the task force is a not an infectious disease expert but a radiologist with no training in epidemiology or public health. So look to see where the information comes from. But I would say um, in terms of where you get inf information, it's it's important, and we need to go back to the basics. Is it proven through good old-fashioned clinical trials, sometimes what we call the gold standard, double-blind, placebo-controlled trials? And, this... and how many people were in it? Who got it? How, how did they do it? You know, these things are described in ways that you can understand. Is it good enough for you? Right, and with multiple vaccine trials going on, there may be certain vaccines that are better for older folks or for kids or for folks with different comorbidities, it may not be a one-size-fits-all vaccine. We still don't yet know whether you might need to get a booster, like we do with some vaccines, maybe after six months or a year. Uh, fortunately, COVID, unlike the flu, doesn't seem to have a fast mutation rate. Every year, we need a bit of a different formulation of the flu shot. COVID does not seem to be similar as a, as a coronavirus. It's quite different. But um, we'll still be learning a lot. And even when something has been FDA cleared as safe and effective, there's always going to be some side effects. Sometimes it's a sore arm or a low-grade fever 
or a very small percentage of population may have some more significant comorbidities. It's all a bit of a risk-benefit balance. And I think we all need to be part of what's now called sort of phase four clinical trials, where we're still monitoring folks when they're on a new medication. It's well, been released, it's been approved, but we're still looking at all the data. Exactly. And that means we can all sort of be part of that uh, fourth uh, trial arm and sharing problems. You can share that with your clinician, let them know, and that can go back to report to the public health officials. In fact, we should have been doing this all along. We had this idea that we'll just keep really studying it here, and once it's released, okay, fine, it's out there. It seems to me if you're taking any medication or any vaccine or any of the any of the things that we depend on and that are tested is that, hey, you're getting this, share what's going on with you because it contributes to the great body of what's going on. It could help you. It could help everybody else in there, but we need all the data to do it. But we also need the right mindset. We all remember the uh, brouhaha about hydroxychloroquine, uh, which was promised to be the miracle drug. And in many, many double-blind, randomized, placebo-controlled trials, it showed that hydroxychloroquine, unfortunately, was not uh, safe and, and not effective in, in, in COVID, either in inpatients or in preventative studies. And so sometimes when you get misinformation out there in terms of the infodemic, it, it makes it harder to run a clinical trial because everyone wants to get, you know, not the placebo arm, they want the therapeutic arm. That goes to other treatments we've tried for COVID like uh, convalescent plasma, which is still unclear. Right now, as we speak, there's a lot of excitement about antibody-based therapies that have uh, treated the president, Regeneron, uh, for example, and that's showing promise in a very initial clinical trial, but it hasn't gone through full phase two and phase three and full safety and efficacy. So we need a little bit of patience. Science takes time, just like nine women can't make a baby in, in one month. Uh, some elements... They'd like to sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we still need the science process to go through, and, and safety and efficacy, efficacy uh, takes uh, time, money, and participants to be part of these trials. And let's not forget our verbiage during these days, rolling right into this. Is there going to be a vaccine? Can we come up with a vaccine? A vaccine? This may be because of our capabilities and in innovation and how many people can work on it from any, how many different ways that there will be a set of multiple vaccines. And so Every person in your family, depending on age, you say comorbidities. I've never said that before, but I'm sure it's really bad. <laughs> bad things, underlying conditions, um, uh, all kinds of things that could go on. The decision for each individual in the family and which vaccine might apply to them, I think is something we've never thought of before, but I think we can very well believe that that could happen as we, as we find solutions. It's going to have to happen because... Again, multiple vaccines will be coming out. We also need to understand who would like who should get them first. Is it going to be frontline workers? Is it going to be the elderly? And and then we'll all be sort of still part of this ongoing, you know, phase four clinical trial, real world evidence, because in many clinical trials for let's say a new drug, um, we look to see does it work on the average patient? And none of us are really average. Uh, we're often above or below average. We're all above average <laughs> if they listen to Tech Nation. And um, that means that a drug that sort of works on a very narrow clinical trial, it may, let's say, be a drug to treat disease X. But the patient with disease X can't have disease Y or Z or B. In reality, many patients have those things combined or they're taking other medications. And so we often need to wait uh, till drugs are fully released to, to see a drug, a vaccine, or any kind of intervention. But back to the core premise, I think we need, in the United States and around the world, need to come back to our core essence of trusting science, uh, our public health officials, and, and getting to an era where 
we're all collaborative and not um, red versus blue, and that we're using information to learn and, and up-level everybody. Um, because science is a process. It's not always neat, and sometimes it's a bit messy. Um, but if we're spreading rumors, if we're spreading misinformation, and we're not sort of listening to the health authorities, uh, we're not going to get to our, our end, end goal. And our end goal is not to be, what did you say, doubly deadly, <laughs> twice as deadly, it's to be zero deadly. That's right. You only zero live once, deadly. you only die once. But hopefully uh, <laughs> the path can be long and we can have uh, a health span that uh, is optimized. And and I think, you know, this pandemic, uh, you know, is catalyzing a lot of potentially good things, just like Sputnik uh, catalyzed the space age. Uh, COVID is, is, is a bit of a catalyst for a new health age. And vaccines in particular, which have been accelerated, are going to give us new modes to create the next vaccine for a next infection and pre prevent the pandemic. The fact that you can now sequence the virus, you know, fax that or email it around the world, print the vaccine uh, and put that into a patient literally within days is part of our new era. Can we accelerate that, demonstrate safety, efficacy, and create a whole new generation of vaccines that don't just in treat infectious diseases, but start to prevent neurologic disorders like Alzheimer's or autoimmune diseases. So. Think about vaccines outside of just infections. They have a, a broad array. But again, we need to be careful about understanding the data, communicating it well, and uh, collaborating on, on data and, and proper information. Thanks, Daniel. Thanks, Moira. Tech Nation Health Chief Correspondent Dr. Daniel Kraft is the founder and chair of Exponential Medicine. More information is available at exponentialmedicine.com. And there you have it, infodemic. But there was another term that Daniel mentioned, which caught my attention, doom scrolling. You know it, grabbing your phone for the latest horrific news. First thing before you even get out of bed, checking your phone for updates last thing at night when you get back into that very same bed and you've already turned out the light. Hey, the phone has its own light. Picking it up any time of day when you're bored or anxious to see the latest in some particular situation. Either way, you get more anxious. And speaking of anxious, every article I've read on doom scrolling has tips. Practice meditation. Connect with others. Control your time. Take a walk. Eat more junk food. Okay, that last one isn't true, but I was so irritated at a suggestion about making time for hugs. Hey, people, there's a pandemic on. And don't get me started on another one of those suggestions. Hope questing. I myself like a little reality. For example, many of these articles refer to the fact that we're human and we're wired to look for threats. Threats like when you're walking quietly through an Amazon jungle and you encounter the glowing eyes of a black panther. Yeah, let's add that one to the list. So when it comes to all those heaps of information of unknown origin that are out there, accessible at the simple touch of your finger to the screen of your smartphone, stay out of the jungles. For Tech Nation, I'm Moira Gunn. Tech Nation and its regular segment, Biotech Nation, are produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Executive producer is Matt Gardner. 
The director of technical production is Monte Carlos, and audio engineers include Howard Gelman, Seal Muller, and Larry Upton. Our theme music was composed by Ann Nochtrieb Zessiger and Robert Powell, with title creation provided by NameLab Incorporated of San Francisco. Program information and internet audio is available on the web at technation.com. TechNation and BiotechNation are productions of TechNation Media. I'm Paul Lancor. Thank you.